Welcome to the Faith Crisis Coach Podcast. This show is my love letter to all of the people going through a faith crisis and transition that feel alone and like your world is falling apart. I've been there. As an all-in, eighth-generation Latter-day Saint, a faith crisis was the last thing I expected or wanted. But now, my life, my mental health, my relationships, my self-image, all of that is so much better because of how I leveraged my faith crisis. I'm your host, Josie Johnson, certified trauma-informed life coach and happy faith crisis graduate. If you want to grow through this experience, not just go through it, listen in. Hello, my faith crisis friends. Today is the second episode in the Foundations series. So last episode, we talked about spiritual development. Now we're going to talk about grief. And the next episode, the third in the series, is going to be about self-image and identity. So let's talk about grief. Grief is a big part of many people's faith crises and transitions. And this is for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of things that we're grieving. I'm going to list a few of them. For me, there was grief around the afterlife, um, not knowing what was going to happen when I died. Um, there's been grief around my identity, my past circumstances and choices, my loss of the one relationship where I was understood and loved completely, my loss of certainty in general. I lost my perception that I knew how the world worked. There was a loss of pride. I took pride in being a really good Latter-day Saint. (laughs) I would consider myself all in, like valedictorian status Mormon. I took pride in that. And I lost that sense of being really, really good at something. And my family relationships Um, there was a loss in how I expected them to be in regards to um, my faith and my religion. Grief is also not limited to the person who experiences the faith crisis or transition. Spouses, parents, children, and other close loved ones of someone in a faith crisis and transition experience grief as well. There's grief all over. (laughs) Um, I could spend so much time just going into all of the ways right? That we grieve in relation to a faith crisis and transition from both parties. It's all important. It all matters. It's all allowed. Something I want to kind of touch on is that we've learned to be very optimistic in religion. For me, with the Mormon LDS perspective, we learn to be happy. We learn to be positive and optimistic. And in that, we kind of learn to dismiss grief. We don't grieve well as Mormons. We do our best, but sometimes we can minimize the pain that's real as we overcomfort each other. And I really just always want to acknowledge that this is so nuanced. <laughs> um, But I do think that there is a part of talking about how our families can be together forever or how everything will work out in the end. There's a part of that that's helpful. And then there's a part of it that can be a little bit dismissive. And it may not be intended to be that way. But I think we're uncomfortable with grief. We're uncomfortable with sadness and pain. And 
even more so in LDS culture. And so I think it's important to hold the beliefs that you do and somehow also hold empathy, like not letting hope for the future cloud our empathy for people now that are experiencing loss in the present. And that's something that we as LDS people would do in many situations of grief, right? When someone gets a cancer diagnosis or um, when someone's loved one die, loved ones die, or there was a significant loss in their career, or there's so many different types of losses. And I don't want to minimize any of that by not listing one or by talking about it in a simple way. But I do think it's worth mentioning that in multiple areas, we have learned to kind of be overly positive and to dismiss grief. And I think it's important to talk about how grief works and ways to work through it. So today I'm going to be talking about the stages of grief based on the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She was a Swiss-American psychiatrist and a pioneer in near-death studies. She's the author of internationally best-selling book on death and dying, where she first discussed her stages of grief. And now there are, it's been updated from five to seven stages. So those stages of grief are shock, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and testing, and then acceptance and hope. Um, And one more note is I want to acknowledge that I want to acknowledge the opposition in all things, as we would say in LDS culture in the Book of Mormon. I believe that's where it is, the Book of Mormon, not the Bible. But it's similar in many other cultures, right? The yin and yang, 50-50 in the um, life coach school, right? Like the idea that life has a way of balancing itself out. And in the case of grief, I have noticed within myself and talking to other people um, that depending on your attachment to the church, depending on your love essentially and need even for the church, that impacts the depth of the loss, right? So for example, like for me, because I came from, not because I came from Pioneer Stock, but because the culture of the church was so bred into me um, and with my personality leaning a more, a little bit more anxiously attached, um, my attachment to God and the church was very intense. And so for me, it was very catastrophic to lose someone who was less dependent than I was, maybe someone who had multiple friend groups from multiple worldviews, their perception of a faith transition or crisis may be different than mine because there was less attachment and need for the church in the first place. And again, that's just like a general way to explain it, but I do think that that is something to know and that may provide some empathy if people are experiencing a different amount of quote unquote, like crisis or not, there's no right amount of grief or whatever. Um, This is something to know. So let's get into these stages. So again, there's shock, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, testing, and acceptance slash hope. So the first one is shock. And for those in faith crisis, this is kind of like the catalyst Um, this could be the shelf break. It's when all of the sudden 
something doesn't make sense anymore. (laughs) And it feels very real. And there's like a sudden loss of control. So often when this happens, there's like a nervous system kicking in to help you cope with trauma. Um, And for our loved ones, this could be when we find out that our spouse is leaving the church or um, isn't trying to strengthen their testimony anymore. A catalyst could be like realizing that your um, gay child wouldn't be able to get married in the temple. Um, There could be a catalyst like hearing about how church leaders are handling um, sexual abuse, right? Uh, The catalyst could be stumbling upon something in church history when you're even like researching for a lesson in church, (laughs) Uh, George Floyd's murder. I think that was a catalyst for people um, just connecting like the dots and um, looking at racism in church's history. Anyway, there can be a lot of like catalysts, quote unquote, and shock is the stage when the catalyst happened. And as we go through these stages, I want to mention like the thought that is often kind of driving the stage or um, the main thought during the stage. And to me, this, the um, thought in shock is like, what? This doesn't make sense, right? Like this doesn't make sense. What? And it's just like this dissonance of what you believed coming up against this new event. The next stage is denial. And this may be like pretending that the loss doesn't exist. It can also be the process of slowing down to process and absorb everything that's changing kind of subconsciously. Um, For me, this was when I kind of swept my faith crisis under the rug and still attended church um, and was studying church materials, going to the temple, studying at BYU and BYUI, going through the normal LDS steps. I was 19 when my faith crisis started, so it was easily buried with college, dating, getting married, being a newlywed, having a baby, etc. I thought I needed more information. I was putting things on the shelf, so I wouldn't say my shelf broke at that time with my catalyst, but it was definitely like shocking. Um, And for me, I ended up being in denial for a long time, um, kind of holding on to ideas people would give me like, God trusts you. That's why he didn't answer instead of maybe entertaining the idea that like there isn't a God. It was more comfortable and more made more sense to me to just entertain the idea that like God abandoned me and that I was betrayed. As a loved one, being in denial could look similar. This kind of business as usual, compartmentalized um, kind of thing, making it make sense, this like confirmation bias. It can, there can be some like thought stomping with God will take care of that in the afterlife, or we don't understand all things, um, telling post-Mormons um, or other people in faith crisis to um, doubt their doubts and leave the church alone, um, to not be a lazy learner, like kind of like putting up a fortress um, and just like saying that other people are wrong can be a bit of denial, like just like limiting your 
uh, exposure to, yeah, like limiting your exposure to information. Um, the brain is protecting reality at all costs. So it's when the brain is essentially working from the thought, this isn't real. This isn't real. Nope. Um, so that's going from shock to denial. And then the anger stage is next. So this is an important and empowering stage where we advocate for ourselves and the unfairness of what we're going through. Anger is kind of like a big sister coming to show us how to tell the school bully to leave us alone. Anger can be typically more socially acceptable in men than admitting that we feel scared or vulnerable. And then depression can be more socially acceptable in women. So that's interesting to note. There's definitely an angry ex-Mormon stereotype. And I think the reason that exists um, is number one, because it's valid, but also not the stereotype, but like, because anger is valid. And yes, people who leave the church do feel angry. It's not that they are angry, they feel angry. And it makes sense that that is the case. (laughs) And we have a complicated relationship with anger in general as a society, right? Like we typically vilify it instead of acknowledging that it is just another emotion that's useful. Um, We definitely talk differently about like anger and sad. Um, But I'm going to go into anger more fully in another episode in the future. Um, So that'll be called anger is allowed. So you can look for that in the future, but Anger is a stage where we tend to be blaming, right? Like if we're in faith crisis or if we've left the church, we could it could look like blaming the church and believers. Um, as current believers, it could look like bashing on ex-Mormons, post-Mormons, people in faith crisis. For me, anger looked like quite a bit of obstinance and just kind of like this righteous, like I'm not even going to get to entertain other people's ideas. I'm not going to open up space to play in the gray. Like I'm right. They're wrong feeling anger. And again, anger is allowed. (laughs) It's allowed and it makes sense. Um, And the thought that kind of drives anger, I feel like there's a couple, but one of them is this isn't fair. And I think another one is like, this shouldn't have happened or this shouldn't happen. Okay. The next stage is bargaining. This is where there's like the dark night of the soul. Um, It comes from desperation and helplessness, realizing that we don't have control and looking for an outside force to intervene. This can be from God, like, God, I'll do anything if you take this away. Um, Or like, it can also look like searching multiple places, like maybe this source isn't accurate. I'll look somewhere else. Um, it's essentially just trying to like, like put all the pieces together for me. It was also kind of my nuanced phase. So becoming more nuanced and liberal studying world religions, focusing on Jesus instead of the unique LDS beliefs, nuancing temple questions, right? Like this can like only sometimes wearing the garment, that sort of thing. It's like, kind of just that middle, like, I can fix this, I can make this work kind of place, whether that's searching for someone outside of you to fix it, or you being the one to try to like fit it all together. 
Um, so the thought again is I can fix this. The next stage is depression. And that is kind of, I think this can also be when people refer to the dark night of the soul, they sometimes people I think are referring to the depression stage. And this is where we kind of feel burnt out from bargaining and from anger. The reality of the loss has finally hit us and we're knocked out. So we kind of calm down and go inward. um, Like we're entering a chrysalis. We're being changed on a cellular level and it can look like avoidance, not talking, sleeping a lot, crying. It's this like deep perspective switch. And there's a lot of reflection, loneliness, and sadness. There's some quiet. It's like the slow, sad music. It's sleeping. It's gray. It's just this like sad acceptance that we won't be going back to what we had or what we had hoped for. It's kind of the thought, this is what it is. And again, I want to, I'm going to make some notes at the end of the stages of how this is, how these stages are nuanced (laughs) as everything is. The next stage is testing, and that's where we start to create a new normal. So there's experimentation, there's reconstructing life with new circumstances and working through the issues created by the loss. Um, This could include researching church history, trying coffee, taking off garments, getting tattoos, telling people about your new beliefs, um, etc. So the thought that drives the testing is like, let's try and figure out life now, or Like, what does this mean for my life now? And the final stage is acceptance and hope. So we still feel the loss, but we're no longer creating suffering on top of the pain. So we may still have initial waves of pain, but not additional suffering from resisting reality or judging our pain. And we feel confident in our life post-loss. We're kind of getting in a groove. So the thought in that stage is, I've got this. So like I said, I want to note some things to remember about grief. The first one is that it's not linear. You can bounce around from stage to stage and back and forth. Um, Like for me, I feel like I could experience multiple stages in a day even. (laughs) Um, I could experience anger and depression in a day. Um, And I think that for me, I think I experienced, well, I know I experienced depression before I experienced anger. Um, So I think it's just not linear. It depends person to person and you may not even go through every stage. So this is just a way to illustrate the grief process. And I think it helps to have frameworks to understand it, but it's not linear. It's also not equally weighted. Some stages or phases are going to weigh heavier than others for different people. Um, That's normal. And then the third one is that it comes in waves. It doesn't really end, right? So it's not linear. It's not equally weighted. And it doesn't really end. Loss is just a part of the story now. You'll likely have grief grenades as Krista St. Germain, a specialist in post-traumatic growth and grief calls them, where something will spark a memory and randomly your brain will remind you of the grief and you'll feel it again. It could be kind of any type of emotional reaction, right? We could get reminded and feel angry again, or we could get reminded and feel depressed again, or get reminded and start 
you know, bargaining again or so it's not a perfect illustration of you'll go from this stage to this stage to this stage and then you'll be done. It's like these are pieces of grief that typically happen. Um, but the amount and the the amount of each stage and the order in which they go and like all of that is just kind of like personal and there's no perfect map. And I would encourage you to not add additional suffering on top of your pain of grief by judging your process, by thinking it should go faster or thinking like, oh, I've already been in this stage or that so-and-so wasn't in the stage as long. I think it's really important to have self-care during grief. And I would encourage you to go listen to episode two of this podcast where I talk about three tips for people in faith crisis. Um, because I think that those are all really useful with grief in mind. And before we end, I want to list some thoughts for you to remind yourself when you're processing grief. So I'm just going to list them one by one, and you can re-listen to them if you want to. So this makes sense. I'm going to take my time. I get to take my time. I'm doing my best. Everyone's doing their best. My family and friends are grieving too. Good job at blank, like giving yourself credit for things. Other people have done this, so can I. I'm stronger than I realize. I have permission to be human. I've got me. I get to be sad, mad, numb, whatever it is. I get to be blank right now. I get to be sad right now. I get to be mad right now. I get to feel numb right now. Okay, so that's all I've got for you today, my friends. Talk to you next time. Bye. Hey, thanks for hanging out with me today. I'd love to stay in touch over on Instagram. So follow me at Coach Josie Johnson and shoot me a DM when you do. It's not weird. I promise. I'd love to hear if there's a topic you want a podcast episode on. That way I can make sure I'm helping you with whatever is top of mind right now. And if you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe on whatever app you're using so that the podcast is easy to find in the future. Okay, bye for now.